Welcome to the Prize of Possibility podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mitch Ablett. I have a strong belief that the greatest prizes in life are hidden in plain sight. They are the nuances, the nooks and crannies of everyday moments that are easily missed. Join me in these conversations with authors and influencers and researchers to miss fewer of them, to truly claim these prizes. All right, everyone, welcome to today's episode. I'm here with Dr. Mark Burton. He and I have uh, known each other's work here for a while, but this is actually the first time we're we're sort of meeting over over Zoom. Uh, but I'm so excited to have Mark on the show. Let me do my little intro here, Mark. You know, Mark is a developmental pediatrician. He studied, and I'm looking past you at my my notes I have here. Make sure I get this. <laughs> if you're like, where's where is eyes going? He studied at Cornell and UCLA School of Medicine. He's the assistant professor of pediatrics at NYU Medical College. And he's on the board of directors of the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders. And he lectures quite a bit on issues related to child development, uh, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, uh, parenting, mindfulness, which is a in addition to some of the clinical stuff, he and I have a lot of overlap around mindfulness practice and how to bring it to kids and families. He's got some cool books out that I highly recommend. There's the Family ADHD Solution, uh, Mindful Parenting for ADHD, and he's got a, a new one that is just recently out, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion for Teen ADHD, that he co-wrote uh, co with Karen Bluth. So, Mark, welcome to the Prize of Possibility. Um, thank you so much for joining me. It's really great to be here and great to, you know, I guess we'll, we'll call this meeting in person, but hopefully we'll get to do that for real someday soon. That's right. That's right. Now, so, and you're in, you're in New York State somewhere, correct? Yeah, I'm about an hour north of New York City. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll be heading into New York State here every summer. We do a, a trip to Chautauqua in far western uh, New York State, where my, my wife's family has gone since she was a little kid. So I've spent a lot of time in New York State. Oh, that's great. Uh, yes. So, hey, let's let's get right into it. Um, you know, one of the things that's, I think, pressing on a lot of listeners' minds is, uh, and I'm sure they would love to hear your thoughts on this, what are, what are some unique challenges for families uh, coming out of, uh, and hopefully staying out of, COVID? You know, what, what things are on your mind these days that are unique challenges for families? Wow. I mean, that, that there are so many different things to talk about. I mean, hopefully most of it is exciting. And like you said, we're moving past what's been a, you know, awful and, and really, you know, immensely challenging year. I mean, one thing I've been, I feel it's really important to start with whenever just talking about this experience is just recognizing how all over the place it's been. I don't think there's anything we can talk about that's really going to, you know, meet the needs of everybody, you know, yes. um, I mean, yes. some people, have had, you know, truthfully, some people, some kids even in school have had an easier time of, you know, sort of home learning while that was going on. And then some families, it's been, a, you know, a tragedy and there's been, you know, such um, immense challenges. So, so I, you know, I just, we can talk in general, but I think it's important to acknowledge that. And what, 
I think, yeah, I think that's a huge point in and of itself that there's no one size fits all set of recommendations or things to be doing for your family. Absolutely. And, and you know, so as we come out of things, I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, to be looked at. And I mean, I, I'll bullet point a few things and you can tell me where you want to go. I mean, you know, there's, you know, we all have to recover on some level and find ourselves back to some sense of the new normal, whatever that's going to look like. And I know you and I talk yes. about mindfulness a lot and mindfulness to me. And, you know, one way of looking at it is that it is a practice of resiliency and we can talk, you know, there's a piece of this that has to do with, you know, building our foundation up again. Um, I think a lot of people are experiencing a lot of anxiety around, you know, what's going to be a new situation again, or coming out of their homes and sort of, in many situations, very ambiguous guidelines about what needs to happen. And then, and then I think there's a whole other piece of things that is barely, I think we're barely scratching the surface on just the, the academic piece of things and, and how we're going to, you know, manage catching everybody up who needs catching up much yes. less actually the, and then and then there's the whole um you know the broader mental health implications of everything that's happened so so there's a there, there's just an awful uh, not unexpectedly an awful lot we could cover an awful lot that needs to be addressed societally and, and you know and then for any of us you know obviously it comes down to not necessarily um trying to address everything for everyone but what what do we need to do for our families you know um what I was saying about mindfulness was, is that it's an opportunity to, um, you know, focus on resilience, which is really in many ways what the bigger practice of mindfulness is about, you know, on a more specific level, I think there's a lot of anxiety about how to live this, you know, this next stage in life and navigating very specific situations that often have ambiguous guidelines. You know, there's a lot being discussed and explored about what many people are seeing as a mental health crisis of just the number of people who are struggling. And, um, and then, um, you know, and then I think there's an academic piece you can look at too, you know, of just that a lot of kids probably have fallen behind over the last year and how are the schools and how are we going to catch everybody up next year? You know, who needs to be caught up in the schools? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's so important for us to, pause as providers and just like you're saying know that people are going to have a wide range of issues and experiences and what i've been wondering about is how we as providers and then we as parents can just really slow down as much as we can right with all that's going on and really just be listening to ourselves Mm -hmm. what are what are the needs that are surfacing and then listening in for our kids and family members, what are the, the large pain points and subtle instead of the launching in to fix everything, mm-hmm. which is just so common and necessary to some degree. What, what are those pain points that we can really listen and start to speak to, to each other? Uh, that starting with ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think there's, um... You know, one of the things I think that people are starting to talk about, I mean, you know, we're, we're, you and I wouldn't be the only ones, is that, you know, as much as this was a trauma on, on such a huge scale, there also, you know, is a lot to learn too. I think there's threads of it that people, um, 
I wouldn't say found, it, it wouldn't be right to say found positive necessarily, but just threads of it that maybe realigned us with some of our, you know, just helped us see things differently. You know, there, there's a yes. positive to spending a lot of time with family, maybe a little less than we were all first <laughs> the last year, but there's a positive to spending a lot of time with our kids, with our families. A lot of people really enjoyed the aspect of, you know, not being as overscheduled. Um, so, you know, again, this wasn't the way we wanted that to happen clearly, but at the same time, there's an opportunity there to look at, you know, realigning with like, how do I want to move forward here? How do I want to live next? Yes. You know, um, you know, what's really important to me coming out of this, which, you know, which I, I think you mentioned a minute ago coming, you know, back to like, what is mindfulness? I mean, you know, in many ways, mindfulness is a practice of um, trying to stay resilient in the middle of challenges and trying to align ourselves with our best intentions, you know, as best as we're able. Yes. Um, and this is an opportunity for that. Um, and then in similar fashion, like you're saying, there's going to be an awful lot we all have to navigate moving forward. And as much as we're able to staying, um, you know, settled enough to pick to, to just pick and choose a little bit to see with clarity like this is really important to deal with now and that you know maybe is something that can wait or maybe something that's not as important um like you said if we you know if we just try to fix everything all at once that's a quick way to burn out you know so yes um yes you know that's i mean we're talking kind of abstractly and open-endedly here we can come down to some of the nitty-gritty today a little bit too maybe yes but in the big picture I think that's important and um and certainly when it comes to parenting you know so much of what is challenging in parenting even in the best of times is that things are often pretty uncertain and we can't control everything and that triggers a lot of whatever you know we each have our own our own habits that we sort of are pushed into when we're feeling off balance that way right right and it's useful to be aware of those habits because sometimes they're productive and sometimes they're you know, just putting us into a spin that isn't, you know, necessarily what we need to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think during the, the past year plus, uh, a lot of us as adults, as parents have found old, uh, you know, reactive habits escalate a bit. And it's, I, I think that's where mindfulness can be uniquely helpful to be aware, you use the word clarity, very important to be aware of those patterns, those habit patterns as they're popping up in the body and in the mind and, and be with it without just launching in to either control it, to control it in some way, push it away or pull something in. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how many people listening just because I don't, I don't know your audience so well are really familiar with how, you know, with mindfulness. So, you know, I mean, the short of it, is there's so many cliches related to it and it's packaged so many different ways and it's really yes. not meant to be any of that it's it's you know it's a practice of a lot of depth and very practical because you know the what we're really saying is that we tend to stay caught up in our minds a lot in ways that sort of project us into the future you know like we someone's struggling with homework but now they're also failing out of college you know we, yes. we get caught up in you know just we get caught up in like reactivity and and stuff that isn't actually going on in ways that complicate our lives yes. and and the practice um as you start as you just said you know the reason there's value to our families when we practice ourselves is you know all we really control in life ever is our own part of any particular situation 
you know, that's frightening sometimes as a parent, but that's all. No, wait, I control my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you're, the lucky, you're the lucky one then. But, I, I, um, might, I might be the only one. Yeah. In a, and if they ever listen to this, they'll be like, yeah, right, dad. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and that's the bottom line. So we, you know, so that, the, you know, the bigger premise of mindfulness is one that has a lot to do with our families and our communities, because the assumption is, is that, that if we can stay settled at our best, you know, then we'll navigate whatever's going on with more skill and, and it'll impact everyone around us. Yes. So in this moment of like uncertainty and crisis of a level none of us expected to live through the, you know, starting from the uh, premise that if we can come back to our own resilience and keep our own feet on the ground, you know, that's going to be what's most important for our families quite often. Um, yes. You know, that's in essence what the practice of mindfulness is. It's not perfection and it's not being calm all the time. It's just trying to stay aware and, you know, do our best through whatever we're facing. Right. I think that last thing that you said is so important for any parents. And there are a lot of parents that uh, are listeners here, you know, that it's not about perfection. It's a real myth around mindfulness practice and contemplative tradition that it's this ideal that you're always falling short of. And parents have enough of that these days of feeling like they're falling short. Absolutely. So, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's part of the downside. One of the main downsides of like the whole social media and internet world we're living in is it just creates this constant comparison to, you know, completely impossible ideals. Um, and just to just like finish the, um, I, I realized I tried just one little piece to what we were yeah, saying yeah. about mindfulness. You know, it's one of those things where like, it's intuitive, obviously, that life's easier if we're staying settled and thinking clearly and all those lovely things. But, you know, the premise of mindfulness is that none of us can do it perfectly, but the practice of mindfulness is one of building the traits that make that easier. You know, so it's, yes. not, it's not just setting the intention to do that. It actually offers like, okay, if you, you know, practice this, this stuff gets easier. You know, you right. live that way more consistently. And then very importantly, you'll, you'll also maybe learn to be a little um less harsh on yourself and more forgiving when you probably you know lose touch with that maybe multiple times a day you know it's not right you know, that's just part of life too yes yeah you, just even the base as you well know the basic sitting practice yes. uh you know in in a period of uh sitting your mind is gonna wander five times more like 500 5, times right and you, in that very practical way, are learning to go easy on Absolutely. yourself and your experience that the mind is going to do what it's going to do. Thoughts are going to pop and, you know, you're going to have an itch. I was doing a, a brief sitting. I'm not sitting nearly as much as I used to, which, you know, I want to get back to, um, but an itch on my nose mm. and I, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not showing up well to this today. Wait. I've been doing this for years. Right. Allow that to be just like it is and not be yeah. so harsh on myself. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one way to look at the practice of mindfulness, I think, which again is really valuable for, for parents in particular, is that it's it's not we're directly building patience and resilience is what we're building. Because if we, you know, one of the quickest ways to quit is to go into the practice thinking you're going to have a quiet mind or nothing's going to bother you. It's like you're going to get bothered and your mind's going to be busy. But what we're doing, which is kind of, you know, really different than the rest of life, 
is for however few minutes we set aside for ourselves, we're practicing being patient with like, you know, anything short of an emergency, we're just going to be just let things be not because it's actually mindfulness is very proactive too. like if you look at mindfulness and family, it's not that you're just going to suddenly say everything's okay. You know, it's like just dropping the um, if we can drop the reactivity, it's just that we're going to navigate things better. So, you know, in fact, it's very somebody recently I heard a talk from somebody who said mindfulness is almost inherently a practice of activism, because if you sit long enough to see what's actually going on in life, if you build your awareness, you're going to see there's an awful lot of stuff you want to try to change, mm -hmm. which is a very different way of looking at mindfulness. I like that a lot. It, yes. So. So sometimes mindfulness is the, you know, settling long enough to realize, like, I got to stop avoiding that problem. You know, that's mindfulness, too. Um, but the yes. practice itself, like you're alluding to, and I think this helps people stick with it, is one of trying to develop the trait of being patient with like, okay, for five or 10 minutes, I'm sitting here. And if my knee's a little sore, you know, maybe I need to make an adjustment, and that's fine. But maybe I can just sort of see what happens if I just observe it and let it change, you know, and if my mood yes. is off right now, you know, there may be times in life when I go for a run, it tends to improve my mood, but you know, I also get into moods which aren't great. And there are times, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in reactivity and start, you know, doing bad, you know, less useful habits or blaming other people. And there's just value to saying yes. like, okay, my mood's crashed right now, you know, for a few minutes, it's not that I'm happy with it, but for a few minutes, what happens if I just sit here with my anxiety or sit here with my anger and not do the typical reactive thing I typically do? Yes. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard that one point that you made in there that I, I want to underscore it, that, uh, that just the simple practice of sitting meditation and, and you, know, fo you know, focusing in on the breath and then the clarity that comes from ongoing practice can make it much more clear as to what things to be addressed mm -hmm. in the world around you in the community around you in your own family there's an you know the activism mm -hmm. that can come from that you know a lot of people have the misunderstanding that meditation you know you know mindfulness practice is passive right and selfish actually you're gonna have much more clarity about things to be addressed and the ability as you're saying to have the patience to be in it and not be as reactive right. and then and yeah well i was just going to say that that's an important word to look at because reactivity i think when we use that word you know a lot of the language of mindfulness you have to sort of um not get cut up on the words you have to look for the meaning because words get used lots of different ways even the word mindful can mean lots of different things to different people and when you yeah. look at the word reactivity you know that the the sort of first thing that comes to mind for most people is like yelling and screaming and stomping your feet. But reactivity from the point of view, like the mental reactivity is just kind of any mindless habit, any just like, you know, reflexive reaction to discomfort. And for a lot of people, it can be avoidance and shutting down and, and not dealing with stuff. And that's still reactivity. So yes. when we talk about letting go of reactivity, it can be letting go of that tendency to avoid that problem you've not been dealing with for 15 years. Yes. You know, your, your reactivity might just be like, every time that comes up, it feels so overwhelming that I'm just going to turn away and avoid the whole thing. Right. So letting go of reactivity can definitely be that moment where you go like, oh, you know, 
I really do have to do something now. Right. I'll, I'll give, I'll, I'll make it very down to earth here. You know, uh, my listeners, my readers of my own writing will likely have come across the story of me dropping an F-bomb on my then three-year-old when she wouldn't put on her coat. And so I, I, I just put that out there that I'm not, you know, despite years of meditation, many years of clinical practice, I still have unskillful moments as a, as a parent. You know, the, the, the quick thing I'll share is when I was earlier in my days as a meditator, um, I thought that I needed to have complete silence. No one needed, you know, I could not have any disruption or I wouldn't be doing it right. Um, so I'm down in the basement in our old house on my little uh, sitting station. And I hear my daughter who was, you know, young at the time walking around the house and she's looking for me. She's calling for me. And I, I'm getting irritated. Mm -hmm. Here, here it comes. She's going to totally blow my meditation today. Right. She came down the stairs. She found me. And for whatever reason that day, instead of the, and I, I really was feeling it, like, you know, even to bark at her to go back upstairs and let me do my mindfulness thing. I invited her to come and sit on my lap where I was sitting. And it was just so cool. She became part of a practice with me for one of the first times. And, and it was just, you know, she, she seemed to get, and we talked afterwards as to, I was doing something that mattered and she was curious about it. And that was an experience that really taught me about teaching mindfulness, mm -hmm. you know, that it's way more about how I'm willing to relate to my own experience than about any words, you know, and I agree with you around the importance of words that you put out to a child or a teen or another adult. It's about how you're relating to your own experience that really teaches. Absolutely. And yeah, and, and so often when we let go of that reactive moment, you know, that allows for something totally new to happen. Yes. Well, why don't, why don't we shift gears and talk about your, your book that's, that's okay. out, which I, I had a chance to re, uh, review the galley. It's a really awesome addition for, for kids and teens. And I haven't, you know, you know, I haven't seen, you know, a resource, a book that provides that overlap between uh, mindfulness practice and self-compassion that's really going to hit the mark for for kids and teens. What what led to this book for for you and for Karen? Well, um, I mean, I guess I I would start just by talking. You know, ADHD itself is much bigger than most people who aren't in the field recognize. So, yeah. to start with, um, you know, ADHD is a developmental delay of a skill set that's called executive function, which is like all of our self-management skills. So executive yeah. function is like the brain CEO. It's like organization, planning, foresight. It's a really wide ranging condition, you know, um, for anyone who's listening and doesn't have a background or doesn't know, you know, it's, it's one of the most, you know, medically confirmed disorders of childhood. The genetics are almost as strong as the genetics of height. Mm. So you know, it's real. 
And when people have it, they're delayed in these skills that allow you, allow you to accomplish things and manage your life. They, and they, they're much bigger than attention. It's attention and behavior and time management and almost anything you can put the word management to. Mm. So it's, you, know, you have to manage projects, you have to manage time, you have to manage relationships on some level, you have to manage, you know, all these, and, and that's all executive function. So, yeah. so when people have ADHD, um, you know, it's, it's really massively impactful. You know, I don't want to spend too much time on it today, but the research on what untreated ADHD does is, is you know, epic. I mean, it's really, yes. um, now the good news is, is when you intervene, people do very well. You know, I don't I never want to, yeah. have, so that's the most important point. It almost right. is, it, I, I actually had this thought when we were talking about mindfulness a minute ago of, of when we talk about avoidance. I mean, one of the most hard, you know, one of the hardest things to deal with as a parent is when our children are struggling. And one of the most important things to do is to, I think, is to just gather the information. And sometimes that means letting go of just like, you know, it's time to just, you know, do this thing, get the evaluation done, yes. find out what's going on is an important initial step. So in terms of the book, um, what you have often um, uh, under addressed around ADHD is it's just its impact on day-to-day -day life. And um, so for families with ADHD, there's a lot of, I mean, it's kind of intuitive, but then there's also a lot of research just about how stressful and overwhelming it is for parents. Yeah. Um, so that you can look at it on that level and just sort of recognize that if parents with ADHD are going to um, deal with this really challenging situation, you know, if we can start with their own mindfulness practice and their own resilience, that doesn't fix things, but it allows them to manage the rest of it more easily. Yes. And then when it comes to kids and teens growing up with ADHD, probably the best one line description uh, of ADHD ever, which I quote all the time is Russell Barkley, who says, it's not a disorder of not knowing what to do. It's a disorder of not doing what you know. Um, Ooh, I don't think I've heard that before. I really like that. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a pretty, you know, concise summary of an entire field because in the end that's what's going on with ADHD it's not that kids don't know better it's not that anybody wants to forget it's not that anybody wants to lose track of time or wants to behave impulsively you know this is what poor executive function leads to but the implications of that are that you know you have tons you know lots and lots of people lots and lots of kids and teens who have grown up just struggling in spite of themselves often being labeled yes. you know lazy or realizing that they, sh you know, quote, should have done better, but, you know, forgot to hand in the paper or, you know, yelled at somebody, even though they, you know, an hour later, you know, are just feeling miserable because they, you know, realized that they lost their temper again and emotions, a big part of ADHD, yes. and they, you know, they wish they hadn't. And then kind of like when I was talking about parents of kids with ADHD, you know, what are the implications of that? Well, you know, we know so much about how persistence and resilience rely on how you feel about yourself and mindset and your own belief in the value of your own effort. So if you're feeling just run down and miserable about yourself, you know, it's in the same way as I talked about with parents and mindfulness, you know, that's going to make it harder for you to not just feel good day to day, which is quite important, but also to manage your own ADHD specifically. Yes. Yeah. So we wanted to offer a resource that um, kind of sees that big picture of 
the practical advice, you know, no one should be selling mindfulness as a, you know, independent fix for much of anything, you know, it's, it's a support for being resilient, so that if we can start with self compassion and mindfulness, and, and that same sense of being, you know, grounded and believing in ourselves in our in a very real way, you know, I never should feel yeah. mamby pamby, we can talk through what it actually means in a moment, but right, you know, just really changing our mindset in that way, um, then allows us to more realistically start seeing what's going on with ADHD so we can actually, you know, take care of that practicality too. So we, you know, we wanted to integrate that sort of evidence-based ADHD care into this broader context of mindfulness and self-compassion. Yes. Can you speak a, a bit to self-compassion because I'm, I'm yeah. and how that would uh, be a useful right. yeah, set of practices around like ADHD? Right. So, so mindfulness, um, so I'll break it into two parts and mindfulness is actually often considered part of self-compassion practice, but, you know, mindfulness again means awareness on its, you know, unbiased awareness probably is a good straightforward explanation of it. And that is, um, an important reframe, particularly around ADHD, because people are often worried, like, how could somebody with ADHD who's so distracted to begin with practice mindfulness? And it's like, well, anybody can practice mindfulness. If you're aware of the fact that you're, you know, really distracted, that's valuable, even if you yes. can't stop the distraction, you know, because right. then you could tell somebody, you know what, wait, 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 you know, because actually this ties together both thoughts, you know, you're, you're get distracted in a conversation that can be really, you know, really embarrassing and hard to go back and say, wait, I missed that. You know, right. so if you're practicing mindfulness and self-compassion, maybe you just have the confidence to be able to say, hold on, you know, can you just, let's go back. I, you know, I lost the thread for a minute there. Yes. And, and that's mindfulness and self-compassion both. So the mindfulness, uh, you know, so mindfulness in ADHD does work and it's been shown, there's been studies on it because it's about developing awareness. Your focus does improve a little bit, but it's not going to replace any other part of treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you can manage your stress and be aware of what's going on with more clarity, you can manage it more easily. Yeah. And self-compassion, um, I was glad to hear you kind of alluded to this, like, you know, a, a few minutes ago, you know, self-compassion is inherently part of mindfulness practice to begin with, to me, if we practice it well, because yeah. part of mindfulness practice itself is letting go of being harsh with ourselves. I mean, we're, we're trying to do this impossible task of focusing on the breath, which never really happens very long. Right. And we need to be patient with ourselves and come back without that sense of like, oh, I blew it again. I never get this right. And yes. so we're learning a little bit of self-compassion just with any breathing practice. But what self-compassion practice is more specifically, um, which was defined initially in the West by uh, Kristen Neff, who's a brilliant speaker and researcher out of um, Texas. Yes. Um, Self-compassion really comes down to um, acknowledging and then working with the fact that we're often, you know, way harsher with ourselves mentally than we would be with anybody else. Yes. The example I often use is, you know, imagine you're going up to the front of an auditorium full of people to give a talk, you know, or, or you're asked to speak and, you know, you totally wipe out as you go on stage, you know, coffee spills down your shirt, flies, you know, maybe splashes everybody in the front of the audience, papers everywhere. You know, you can just you must have been there the day I did this. <laughs> and, you, and you think for a second, like, what, what was, what's your first mental thought? You know, what's your first thought? You know, your internal thought at that point is probably like, you idiot, you blew it. Everyone's yes. staring, you know, whatever, everyone has their own inner, you know, dialogue, inner script there of like, just, right. this is the worst moment ever and you're never going to recover. And, and then if you think for a moment, you know, what if your, 
you were in the front row, but your best friend did exactly the same thing right in front of you. Yes, yes. You know, what's your first instinctual thought, before thought? Your first thought is like, oh my gosh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Happens. Yes. So Don't. what self-compassion practice is, and this is definitely one of those moments, you know, whenever I speak about mindfulness, it's like, you got to just don't worry about the words, find the meaning of it. You know, it shouldn't, mm. sound, it shouldn't sound anything but practical and realistic. Yes. You know, what self-compassion practice means is that with practice and repetition, like the rest of mindfulness, we can um, develop a new habit where it's not that we're perfect and it's all good. You know, I hate those kind of cliches. It's mm -hmm. that we can just learn to treat ourselves in a more balanced way. Like we can learn to treat ourselves in a way like we would advise our child or like a close friend of yes we're going to make mistakes and we got to keep working at it but when we start to practice self-compassion we don't get caught up in with that compulsive self-criticism yes and in spite of how people often worry about it when we let go of self-criticism and perfectionism um, it turns out those aren't the traits that tend to be driving our improvement you know like people often mm. falsely conflate self-improvement with like perfectionism it turns out that, again, what would you advise a young child? It's like you would advise a young child that we have to take realistic steps and we're going to make some mistakes and perfect's impossible. Yes. So self-compassion practice as a mindfulness practice is typically described as having um, three parts. And, um, and it can be done as you know just part of your breathing practice. It can be done as a full practice or at the start of practice. It could also be done just in the moment during a challenging moment. But... Um, so the first part of the practice is mindfulness itself. Mm -hmm. and that's um, and that's really no small thing. I mean, mindfulness in a way is a practice of self-compassion too. If we, you know, because we often don't take the time to fully acknowledge our experience. Like as right. a parent, you might, you know, the, the fact that we take a moment to say, like, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now and don't know what to do has value. You know. Yes. So, so mindfulness in that way of just like this is everything going on for me. You know, that's part of the practice is. I often, when I'm leading the practice, tie it to the tie it to the tie it to the breath specifically, just as a structure. So it's like, so the way it's often described is like, as you're breathing in, it's just like an open acknowledgement of like, this is life right now. Yes. And then this a lot is of hard. Life. This this, this is, is hard. hard. I'm having a bad moment. I'm having a good moment. It's you know could be, but it's like this is my life right now. Yes. And then the second part, which I think is. Um, you know, really uniquely, um, uniquely part of this practice in, in, for, for most people and, and something that's often overlooked is what Kristen called common humanity, which is mm. um, adding to the practice of just a sense of like everybody has moments like this. Because yep. when we blow it, our first instinct is often to feel like I'm the biggest idiot ever. No one ever else does this. No, you know, you just sort of start isolating yourself from the world. Like I am the only, you know, fill in the blank. Right. So the second part of the practice is, re, you know, really focusing on the intention, not not trying to make yourself believe anything, just reminding yourself, like everyone has moments like this. I've been joking a lot recently. I've been doing a lot of these podcasts, and I mm -hmm. sort of mean this semi seriously. You know, I'm a, um, you know, I'm an aging. Uh, I, I've been for a long time an aging shortstop on a softball team. And it's, nice. not getting, it's not getting any better. <laughs> um, and I'm much older than most of my team. And, um, and I had a really rough day a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> and I, you know, my skills definitely aren't what they were. And I'm, I'm, I'm way irrationally competitive as an athlete still. It's just, <laughs> it's just pointless. You know, I'm 
many, many years past being competitive at any real level. Yeah. But that critical voice comes up right away of like, you know, such embarrassment and anger. And I can't believe, you know, I turfed that throw. And right. And, and then I started because I've been doing the self-compassion practice and speaking about a lot. It was almost like a semi-serious kind of joke that I would just I started saying to myself, no, you know, it's like this happens to all of shortstops. It's yes. Like, okay. All the shortstops, all the old guys playing shortstop. This happens to it's really <laughs> And that was a moment to me of like common humanity of like, you know, this is just part of it's like, it's not that big a deal. It's part of life. All shortstops have these days. But on a more serious level, it is part of life that we all have. Yes. Bad times, you know, and yes. it's like it's valuable during the pandemic to say like, I'm having my family feels like it's falling apart this week. And you know, this is happening to many people. I'm not alone in this, you know, this not alone is struggling. That's right. right. And that's the second part of the practice. And then the third part of the practice, which again is nuanced, is that we can't force ourselves to feel any differently than we do about our lives, about ourselves, um, but we can remind ourselves of like, you know, may I find, some, you know, may I treat myself with kindness right now? May I, treat, mm. may I find my strength in humanity right now? And I, whatever words, you know, again, it's about viscerally what comes to mind for you. Yes. So the not third, forcing it, not forcing not it. If you start forcing it, if you start trying to like strain and stride, you're going to make yourself less happy. You're going to make yourself more stressed. Yes. And account, you know, but, but it's just, every, it's like a signpost. It's so, so on the out breath, it's like, may I find a sense of kindness right now? May I treat myself well right now? Right. And, um, and I'm going to be pretty profound because um, the concept is um, familiar to most of us. You know, you, you, yeah. you can sort of at the same time picture like your, pet even, your child, your best friend, you know, whoever you have that sense to. And over time, like a lot of mindfulness practice, it's about reinforcing a trait. And and the critic yes. may never go away fully. I know Sharon Salzberg talks about how she calls her inner critic Lucy, like from the Peanuts and comic <laughs> strips. So like, you know, yes. like the critic's still there. It's going to keep spouting off and have something to say. But you just try to develop a different relationship with it of like, you know, thanks anyway. Got it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, you know, Lucy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And may I just come back to, you know, strength right now, kindness right now, you know, may I find that sense of balance again. And, um, and it's more straightforward than it seems, honestly, because, you know, if you just reinforce that way of thinking, it does become more, you know, habitual. And to yeah. tie back to the example I gave before, I mean, all of this is why so many athletes are practicing nowadays. I mean, it's not um a panacea but it does help you develop the resilience to bounce back when you're you know knocked knocked off knocked over by something yeah i i, I like that earlier you tied it to the breath that on the inhale you can just acknowledge the i i, I like to call it the uh the felt quality of suck in that moment <laughs> yeah that's about right yeah. it just it just sucks it just hurts you know it's not about judging things because, you know, it, it's about it just feels sucky in yeah. that moment. Right. But then, the, you know, the out breath, this is the way I've I've tried to practice it myself and recommend to people. The out breath can be that that wish, that common humanity connection to the world. You're exhaling out into the world. And that sense of may there be ease from this for, for me, right. for all, for everybody. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I do think, you know, one of, the, you know, obviously, I guess we haven't said this specifically, but I think it's implied by what we're saying is that the whole practice is about not meditating. The practice is about how you're living day to day. Yeah. So bringing it into everyday life, it's what's most important. And, and just like you just described, you know, there are going to be situations we're in 
where we haven't any idea what to say. There may be nothing to say or do. We, we certainly yes. don't know what to say or do. And maybe the best thing is to say or do nothing in yes. some situations. But the ability to catch ourselves and say, I mean, you know, you think about communication has been something I've been asked about a lot lately. And you talk about like challenging communication, you know, that initial moment of like, everyone is stressed right now. You know, every, you can just feel the tension in the room. Yes. And the ability to say, like you said, like, this sucks. Like everyone's, <laughs> I, every, I could just, this is, everyone feels awful right now. I can see that everyone is stressed and angry. And maybe just, you know, it's like, it's almost like an offering back of like, may I just, you know, stay strong. May I just stay, stay strong. Yeah. At ease, whatever captures that feeling of just what you're trying to offer back to the situation can just help keep us grounded, you know, when there might not be anything specific beyond that we can do in that moment. Yeah, certainly you can come back to family and like, you know, there are going to be moments where our kids are freaking out and apart and just being present and trying to be comforting, maybe it for that moment, you know, there, That's there might right. not be a solution, there might not be anything great to say yet, you know, right. And, and yet if they're could be it'll arrive if you right yes uh, yeah i'm talking about just the first moment yeah and that's maybe right if we just are there that's how we'll realize like oh and then instead of the you know reflexive reactive you know we, we that may be where we think you know we we come back to something practical to be done like we started yeah. today yeah it could be that a let's say if we're talking about a parent a parent could say in front of their teen this is this is a sucky moment. It just sucks. Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, and then maybe there's a common humanity ownership, uh, you know, that I, I think, you know, if parents can get to this place without the should, you know, I, I feel the stuck as well. And I own that I was unskillful a minute ago. Yep. Right. And that that seems to come a bit from self-compassion, the willingness to kind of say, you know what, I mess up because we all do. Right. Well, I think that's that that is one of the hugest outcropping, you know, like when you think about, I mean, self-compassion has been shown also to change how we treat other people. And it's, it's again, it's common sense of like how much of how we speak and act is often driven by our own defensiveness, self-criticism, anxiety. Like if we're really going to own up and say like, yeah, I totally shouldn't have said that. I, you know, or I totally blew that one. Yes. You know, we have to have the confidence to, to do that. And that starts yes. with self-compassion, which is realizing like, I'm still a good person, even though I made a mistake and I don't have to, you know, and that, that self-critical voice can be making blowing into the you know realm of like, you know, I'm the worst ever and I'm never going to be, you know, it's going down this road that you just don't want to be on. That's right. So, so the self-compassion practice can be the grounding to say like, yeah, both those things are true. Like I'm fine. I'm a good person. And, you know, I really misspoke both, you know, that that's, yes. and that, that's what allows you to come back and say like, I shouldn't have said that, you know, I, or I, I miss, you know, whatever it is. And I, I have a hard time taking off my family therapist hat, um, which I did wear a hat earlier during COVID for some sessions. Yeah. I was just so like, you know, overwhelmed. I'm, I'm like, I'm looking at myself. I still have my ball cap on. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I've taken a ball cap off. I have my blazer on, but I'm not wearing shoes at the moment, Mark. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that if, if parents uh, ever can have the spaciousness, it's not about the should to, in that self-compassionate way, 
you know, speak from that one down and just, you know, oh, yeah, that was unskillful of me. That is a great way to bring in the kid, the teen, to get curious about how things could shift right. in that communication. I, mean, I, I think that's a super important thing and that self-compassion can bring. It can. And that's so much of communicating with, well, with anybody really, but teens in particular is, you know, trying to, I mean, it's such a hard age as a parent, you know, to parent because we both need to, you know, let our kids become teens and let them explore <laughs> what they need to explore. And they're discovering their independence and their individuality. And, and a lot of helping them do that is, um, you know, being present and listening, you know, and, and that's hard to do sometimes when they're talking or doing stuff that, you know, isn't necessarily what we, you know, are hoping for, or wishing for. And then the balance, you know, which is the proactive side of all this is, you know, teens need parents too. So there definitely are going to be times where we have to set a rule or create a, you know, there's like, you know, there's a, there's a reality based side to it also. Yes. And, and that's why it takes so much, you know, um, of our own resilience to navigate it. Yes. I, you know, just a, one question before we start to wrap up here, Mark, you know, I've encountered this uh, in my own writing, you know, trying to write for kids and teens. Mm -hmm. You know, it tends not to be the kid or the teen that buys the book. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right, right. So what would you say to parents who buy, like, you know, your latest book, you know, Mindfulness Self-Compassion right. for Kids and Teens, like, what should they do with it <laughs> once they buy it? Well, uh... <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I love that question. I mean, there, you know, we thought about the book, there, there's a couple of different things we thought of. And, um, you know, the bottom line is, if you want teens to buy into anything, you just have to try to understand where they're coming from. And um, mm. so that, again, it's one of those situations where you can't give overly general advice, but it's like, you know, what would make this valuable to, you know, your child? Um, a lot of the time, I think with teens, what's valuable is you know, in, if you want to talk in broad generalities, is they're trying to be successful and independent. Yes. And, um, and they're often feeling down on themselves. And, you know, I hope the book offers something that allows teens to, you know, feel better about themselves while becoming more independent. And I think that's often, you know, uh, a way of getting them to buy into you know anything is to sort of understand where they are developmentally so hopefully the book you know is is something you can offer to say like i'm tired you know like neither of us want to be struggling with this but if you were to you know if you want to try you know you if you start you know, started working on some of these things you know we probably would both get a breather from you know some of these things that have been stressing us out yes um and then and then i do think you know i think realistically when we were talking about the book i think um you know, for younger teens, it may be something they they might be. And certainly, we hope to write it so they, they they you know they could read it on their own if they want to, but maybe they do it with uh, someone they trust. You know, that's yeah. another. And then for you know, as you get into more like early college, I think I hope it would be a resource where somebody at that age who often is looking for some resource so they can do this thing on their own. Yes, you know, would would have it as a like you know, but it has the practical side of how to study and stuff in it also. Um, yes is you know something like as an older teen might just more own completely independently but but i think the the shorter answer is you just you know you gotta look i mean this has to do with communication again like we we're talking about like what's what would be motivating right now like what would be the, you know from not my point of view like not as a parent but from my child's point of view you know yes where are they and what what do they find most engaging and motivating right now and that's where the connection with a book like this would hopefully happen 
Yeah, I love that. I think meeting the kid where they're at, what might be in it for them, what might be valuable for them. And I, I'll, I'll toss it in there again. I think if a parent says, hey, I got this. And, you know, however you can approach this, if you're willing, that would be awesome. It would be great for us not to have the stuckness. And there's stuff in here I got to work on too. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've seen that be a way that kids may, you know, particularly older teens, they might circle back to it later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it'll disappear off of the parents' right. you know, bookshelf because they're checking something out. And if they if they take a crack at one aspect, it can it can lead it can plant a seed. Is the yeah. way I like to think about and that, it. And like like you said, and that collaborative approach of like yes, we, we both have stuff to talk through or work on here. Yeah, you know, let's see what we can find. Yeah. You know. Yes. Yes. How can people find out more about you and your work, Mark? Where can um, they go? I think the, the the simplest way is I think everything's at my website, which is developmentaldoctor.com. So it has. And it's not, um, I try to have resource pages there that are just more general, because I think it's so hard to find useful information yeah. on the internet in general. So yeah. So it's not just my stuff. So I have an ADHD page and a learning disabilities page and a mindfulness page of just oh, great. Sort of general resources, but also, you know, uh, you know, my podcasts and stuff like that too. Awesome. Awesome. Mark, it's been great having you on the, on the show. Uh, we had some lagginess with Zoom, but I will address that in editing. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, All but, right. but well, thank you, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great, a great you're conversation. Was, thanks. Yeah, it was it was great talking to you too. All take right, care. Take care. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of the Prize of Possibility. I hope you found things of benefit here. If so, please consider giving this show a positive review. Such feedback is not only great to hear, um, it also really helps elevate the show so that others can find benefit from it. Please stay tuned. More episodes, some great guests on the way so that we can together discover these true life prizes in daily life. Take care.